Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, Paul Turner. Uh, he's a really, really great guy, very friendly, uh, very knowledgeable. Uh, he's the Rachel Carson Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at uh, Yale. And we're going to talk about uh, a part of his work that uh, has to do with viruses. And we'll also be asking him questions uh, that will be part of the virus book I'm putting together. So, Paul, thanks for coming back. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so what, what got you interested in viruses years ago? happened when I was um, in graduate school in the early 1990s, and that happened to be out in California at UC Irvine. And at that time, the HIV epidemic was really taking off nearby in L.A., and I decided to shift my focus more towards viruses and away from bacteria, at least a bit. And that's kind of what set me on my path. And what's your current research about right now? I'm interested in how viruses physically interact with cells and how those kinds of interactions can drive both virus evolution as well as the ability for the cells and hosts to resist virus attack. And um, I guess what's different about the work that I do is those interests span not only bacteriophages that infect bacteria, but also uh, viruses that infect organisms such as humans and that act as pathogens. In terms of these questions, and I'll just kind of resort them, but um, since you like how viruses physically interact with cells, is there a, uh, a favorite entry mechanism, whether it be phage or virus, that just amazes you in the complexity or the sophistication of it? Yeah, I'm fascinated by the very many ways that viruses can enter cells. The thing that impresses me about some bacteriophages is that they act more like viruses of animals in the sense that they sometimes have these envelopes that fuse with the exterior of a bacterial cell and it allows them to just sort of physically interact with the surface and be taken up. And that's pretty wacky in the phage world. A lot of the other phages that are especially well-known and well-characterized, they sort of sit outside of the cell and they inject their genetic material in. I'm impressed with some of these RNA viruses. They're called cystoviruses that are phages that just the whole thing gets engulfed within the cell. Does it seem to signal the, the cell to pull it inside itself, to like to endocytose the whole thing? Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's not exactly known because these aren't the best characterized viruses, but the idea is like many bacteria, their host bacteria have these pili that are waving about. And it's thought that the viruses are exploiting this as a kind of a dedicated, very prevalent binding site. And the bacteria kind of extend and retract these pili to move across a leaf surface or to do other things in the natural environment. And while they're doing this, it seems as if the attaching to the pilus and then the retraction of it close to the cell surface lets the phage reach the cell surface. And that's when it becomes kind of uh, engulfed this way. So it's pretty cool evolved phenomenon on the part of the phages that they can exploit this. Yeah, I think I read a paper on this. It looked like, right, they attach to the pillow, so when the pillow retracts, it like 
rips open the capsid and pulls in the genetic material, you know, alongside the bilis, possibly. Yeah, I think we're learning more and more of these examples of kind of the movement and the, the structures that are on bacterial cells and other cells as they're doing their jobs. This creates a vulnerability for viruses that are attaching to those sites and then gaining an easier access to the cell surface or otherwise getting into the cell more easily. So it's probably something that we'll find more and more examples of it as we look for it in nature. Do you think it's a one virus, one host cell model, or do you think that um, are there viruses that need two, three, four, five, you know, 50 of them to all attach and coordinate entry successfully? Like, are there any instances of that? Wow, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, I, I think that... I guess I would adhere more to the, if a virus or a virion is able to enter a cell on its own, it will. And that the coordination across viruses, I'm pretty skeptical about that being something that evolved for that purpose, as opposed to viruses often have a lot of variation. And if they are interacting with a cellular population, whether it's bacteria or cells of your liver, then the variation can help them. In a way, they're interacting with these cells and it kind of creates a complexity for the cells to deal with the problem. And that might make them more vulnerable to one or more of those viruses being successful and to kind of overwhelm the defenses of the cell system. So I don't know that that's evolved for that purpose as opposed to just helps viruses uh, more, um, you know, more easily gain infections and to be successful. So it's a, it's a bit of a gray area there, but I need more convincing that it's a coordinated effort. Yeah. I just wonder, I imagine, you know, possibly a few viruses, you know, starting to fuse and then maybe they are able to communicate through a cell's membrane or signal through the cell itself to each other and then coordinate entry. Or if they're, if they're hyper local to each other, they literally could, uh, you know, work together somehow to open up the cell membrane or gain entry. But, yeah, I think it's plausible. I suppose I see it as more of a uh, physical interactions and the mechanism itself overwhelms the system so that, such that the viruses can gain infections. Um, I, I think it would be highly cool if there was the equivalent of vision of labor in viruses. We think it's a very popular model that in the evolution of cellular life, there was this key that division of labor happened. And rather than one cell kind of dictating its own fate, it's more about cells doing different things, interacting with one another through signaling, et cetera, and then really evolving to what you'd call multicellularity that has contributed to the success of cellular life. So the question is, do you really need that to be successful for life? And I don't know that you need it because viruses are the most plentiful thing on the planet. You know, when a virus is attempting to enter, I would think there has to be some sensing going on. Like, you know, if I was to set up a cell and the membrane looked right, had all the right receptors and all that, but I, I sucked out all the contents, do you think a, um, a virus or a phage would fuse and enter? Or do you think it would sense midway, something's wrong here, and it would abort? Ooh, that's a cool idea. I think the problem would be a virus initiating infection and the steps kind of dedicatedly go in a cascade that follows. So this is generally the case you see in virus replication has early, middle, and late stages. 
And as far as I know, if they make it beyond the early stage, they're sort of fated to undergo the later stages. And if that cell aborts the infection, then it will cut that process off. And I guess I'm struggling to think of a good way for a virus to evolve an end around to, to uh, avoid that problem. Um, you know, we'll see. But I, so far in my research, I haven't found clear evidence that that could occur. Yeah, I mean, when a virus is entering, do you, so it doesn't seem like you think there's sensing going on on the part of the virus. Um, how early do you think there's sensing going on on the part of the cell? Let me give you my take on what I think virus sensing means. So the, the way that we think about it anthropomorphically is often you know, our senses, we detect the environment, we, re- we respond accordingly through our various senses. And you know, that is happening in other biological entities, even you know, bacteria. People tend to think of bacteria as simple, which they're not. But they have plenty of ways of sensing their environment. So to me, a virus, it's got to be interacting with a cell from the binding standpoint. And the question is, why would you have what's observed in nature as kind of a, a binding process that's reversible versus irreversible? So what you tend to see in viruses that have multiple things that they're attaching to on a surface of a cell is that the first thing they interact, reversible binding. So it's kind of like they can be fooled into attaching or just happen to wander into attaching to the wrong cell type, but the binding is not so strong that it can't be reversed and they fall off and therefore they would bombard with a different cell. And if there's a better kind of sensing that, oh, this is the correct environment, I think it's often why you have the evolution of these multiple receptors because the second receptor, when that is sensed, if you will, by the virus as something that's there, it creates more of an irreversible binding and the infection goes forward. So to me, that's the equivalent of sensing in the virus world is the use of receptors. And you can bind to things as a virus that are not quite the right receptor. And if you have a reversible way to bypass that and to fall off of that receptor, then it should help them on average reach the right cell type. And, you know, if I think of the average virus as like 50 to 100 nanometers, and I, you know, I look at various hosts, you know, bacteria, you know, microns, you or me, you know, enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, how have there been over time? I, I have no clue the number, you know, 10 mm-hmm. to the 10 to the 20 successful viral infections of host cells, you know, yeah. over all time with, this, you know, a tiny virus in a vast expanse of, of yes. host <laughs> you know, and supposedly no motility, no, it's not alive. You know, how does it find its target so many times? I, I agree. The, to me, this is something that is staggeringly difficult for the human mind to comprehend. And to me, it's somewhat equivalent to the kind of stars in the universe problem, or the, like the size of the universe. We can't really contemplate it because we don't have a good grasp of the scale of it. So the problem for us is we have a difficult time thinking about what is it to be navigating the world when you're the size of a virus? So let me get a little more concrete in my answer. I tend to think of it in terms of the enormity of the efficiency of virus replication. So there's all these particles being produced. Most viruses are very good at that. They make progeny very efficiently. And it's a numbers game. So many of them are very 
uh, unsuccessful and a handful are successful. And if I can, for a moment, I'll extend that analogy to um, my wife happens to study marine invertebrates. And for me, it's fascinating in the ocean, which is a vast expanse. If you have something like a jellyfish and it is releasing just, you know, millions of juvenile jellyfish that must require some key like stage where they have to adhere to a surface for a part of their development. It's like, well, how does that happen? You know, how, how is the success of this species in this vastness where they don't, they also don't have a whole lot of power over where they'll go. They're moved around by physical forces and the water, etc. So how are they successful? So to me, it seems they're successful because they produce so many progeny that the lineage goes forward, even though very few individuals are successful in making it to the adult stage. And for a virus, the adult stage would be infecting a cell, replicating, and making progeny. And if over time, if that's very, very, in a way, inefficient, maybe it doesn't matter because there's just so many virus particles of any one type that they can overcome that problem. Well, if viruses are doing some sensing and that they'll only bind to certain receptors based on their, you know, configuration, um, do you think it's possible that they're doing any active sensing before they reach a host cell? That would be pretty cool. They don't seem to have the right makeup to do that in terms of, you know, I hate to use the word complexity and non-complexity and talking about biological systems at all. But many very, very successful viruses have, what, three, five genes? You know, it's very little that dictates what makes up a virus in many instances. So I, I think it's more likely that as we learn more about viruses with large genomes, which we are finding are not so rare in the environment, what kind of sophistication do they carry around with them? Already we're seeing that they have metabolic genes, which shocked people when this was observed because viruses are defined as non-metabolizing. And yet now we're a little more informed and we can understand that within the cell, if you have metabolic genes that you bring to the cell during the replication of a virus, it can be very useful in very many ways to keep the metabolic machinery of the cell going. So that starts to be like, oh, okay, I get it. Now I understand why they have those genes. So if we extend that a bit further to what you're saying, is there a way that they could be carrying around genes that in some way help with this sensing of the environment? I don't really have a great mechanism to explain how it would occur. Maybe I should just give you a shorter answer and say that so many things surprise us as you look into the vastness of the biodiversity of viruses that I'm you know, willing and able to continue to be shocked by what we see because I don't think we have a... Uh, yeah, we don't have a firm understanding. We're only looking at the very tip of the iceberg for virus biodiversity on the planet. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, I think, uh, you know, here's the crux of a lot of the questions and answers is, you know, are viruses alive? Are they contingently alive once they're inside a cell and not alive otherwise? You know, and, and I was thinking about like a tree and a seed that makes the tree. So if, if my experience with trees most of the time was only when I saw seeds and I looked at them, they don't move, they don't do anything. And every once in a while I saw a tree, I would think maybe, hmm, you know, trees are they're not really alive. Most of the time they're just seeds and, you know, in, in this special environment, in the soil and in the sun, okay, they're alive then. But 
and I think perhaps maybe people think of viruses mostly in the virion stage and not when they enter a cell. And maybe that's why they say, oh, no, they're not alive. You know, what's your speculation? I'm pretty much on the record asserting that viruses are alive because I don't think that metabolism is a good way to define life. I don't think that independence is a good way to define life because there's plenty of stuff that's symbiotic and relies on other biological entities to make it on a daily basis or as an evolving lineage. So to me, the ability for viruses to evolve by natural selection and to have traits dictated across generations due to nucleic acid inheritance, whether it's RNA or DNA, that's what cellular life does. So I, I vote <laughs> that viruses are alive. And I, uh, to extend that a little bit more, what I love about Darwin's contribution to biology and to science is that he came up with a process that defines how traits change over time, and it should be able to work in any biological system that has variation, trait-based inheritance with something across generations, and you know, different variants matching the environment and uh, being successful over time. So if, you, if we can prove that life exists in the atmosphere of Venus, but is very different than life here, I would expect it's going to undergo evolution by natural selection. And in a way, on this planet, we've already got very likely something that evolved independently of cellular life showing evolution by natural selection, and that would be viruses. So what Darwin may have stumbled upon and very intelligently put forward is that there's a process that's kind of universal in biology. We don't have that many universal rules in biology. Um, well, okay, so now I guess all the following questions, again, think of them as if you're assuming not only that viruses are alive, but we're, you know, we're putting anthropomorphic uh, characteristics on them versus mm -hmm. being alive, maybe not, and versus not being alive. So anyway, why do you think that there's a latency period when someone's infected with a virus? And this latency period has many different lengths depending on the viruses and the condition of the host you think yeah. it's just viral replication needs to infect quote-unquote enough cells or is there other sensing and you know quorum sensing and other things going on with the virus mm -hmm. i think um, there's probably a minimum expectation that i'm going to see latency for the reason you said there has to be enough of an impact of the virus within a host or in some system to see something measurable that we would cause, you know, call disease, right? Or a change in the physiological state. So the latency until you see something different kind of accounts for that. But what about like long-term latency, something that you see in HIV and other uh, viruses that are pathogens where you wouldn't know you're infected. There's no evidence for it until a very long time passes. So to me, that's molded by natural selection. And the reason HIV, it's a great example, because a primary way that it gets around is through sexual transmission. So you have to be capable in this virus system of having your current host interact with another host in a way that they don't know they're infected for the virus to be transmitted or healthy enough for that interaction to occur for the virus to be transmitted. So to me, that's a great uh, precursor to, oh, that's the transmission route. So that makes sense that this virus is interacting with its host in a way to be successful in increasing virus load, but not so overwhelming that it is kind of detected 
and the host can go about its business for enough time for the transmission to occur. So, well, once a virus is inside a cell, do you think that they can come and near cellular machinery and they can do quite a bit? Do you think that they can also cause cells to send out tailored extracellular vesicles to communicate with other cells or to modify them or prepare them for entry by more of the virus? Yeah, sort of the opposite of interferon, right? Like if a cell is infected with a virus and there's this innate immunity that kicks in interferon production, which then leaves the cell and is a signal to other cells that a predator is in the environment. And you can gear up your own uh, defense system before the virus reaches you. So the opposite of that would be whether viruses can interact with cells and kind of harness existing machinery or instruct the cell to make a, a vesicle or something that then sends the virus to a neighboring cell and maybe it would be less detected that way because it's seen as kind of a cellular derived entity that's fusing with that other cell. I think we have enough evidence to suggest that that does occur or is likely to occur. And to me, that's just totally cool. It's an example of, again, an entity with not that many genes being molded through selection to interact with the cell in the correct way that it drives this process, that it, it enhances kind of the ability to um, infect other cells. And let me, let me go a little further with that. As I, I don't specialize in working on cancer-causing viruses, but I've often thought about, and others have mentioned this in the literature, I, I guess I'm just prefacing it to say I'm not sure how much research has happened, but viruses should be capable of what's called niche construction in ecology. If they're interacting with, say, the cells of your liver, and if your ordinary liver cells, they don't, they don't uh, grow that much over time, but they would if they became cancerous, then they avoid the checks on growth and they make copies of themselves. So the question is whether viruses are purposefully, through selection, interacting with some cell types to break that, that agreement between the, the host cells and the larger multicellular organism, and instead kicking in cancer to happen because it creates more cells for the virus to spread and undergo more replication. It's altering its environment through niche construction to increase the probability that virus progeny will reach a cell where it can replicate. Or the alternative view is it's just a bad byproduct that's a mistake of virus cell interactions that they tend to break this agreement and cells can go cancerous, but it's not really for the purpose of viruses creating more environments to replicate it. Well, I don't know if we can consider it simpler, but do you think viruses may be able to do some kind of quorum sensing? And once they infect a cell, say, all right, how many other cells in this vicinity are infected by a virus? And if so, turn on action A or not. Yeah, that's a tough one, whether the equivalent of quorum sensing occurs in viruses. I, I guess I'm a little more to the sheer variation that's created in some virus populations as they replicate um, can kind of have these effects without it really evolving for that purpose. I, I guess I'm a skeptic for the equivalent of quorum sensing. In viruses. I'm trying to think of an example that fits it to my satisfaction, and I struggle to think of one. 
I guess that's the best I can offer. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've seen in the literature, you know, obviously certain viruses are lytic, you know, they'll multiply and blow up in the host cell. Some are latent or isogenic, and some actually endogenize into, you know, host DNA. What do you think drives uh, which which event happens? You know, especially yeah. if, if a virus is latent for a while, and maybe it's monitoring its host condition somehow, and now it turns lytic. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the monitoring the host condition is something that we underappreciate for a virus that's in the cytoplasm or nested in the genome. I think there are plenty of ways for a feedback to occur such that, for example, if the cell is stressed, that a feedback can make it to be interpreted by the virus as a trigger for them to destroy that cell and move on to another one. So the probabilities of that happening, I believe, should go up as cells become more stressed. And one of our unpublished data sets talks about that in the bacterial world, that you can track, in a way, a bacterial lineage as it's dividing over time. It's not immortal. Eventually, it will senesce or become incapable of making daughter cells. So what we observed is when a lysogenic phage or a temperate phage is in that environment, yes, it'll be replicated alongside the host and reach the daughter cells, but the likelihood of it killing its host and leaving it through lysis increases not just through the arrow of time, but it increases dependent on how stressed those cells are or how aged they are, which is itself a stressor. So we're still trying to figure out the mechanistic reasons, but I think at least in our own experiments, there's evidence that you can have these feedback mechanisms such that I always equate it to rats leaving a sinking ship. If, yeah. the, <laughs> you know, if, the, if the cell ain't working for you, then get out. <laughs> and I think that that's, we underappreciate that viruses can somehow sense the cellular environment to do this. And I'm excited to eventually publish that data set and see what people think. And how can they do this? If a virus is, uh, you know, once it enters, it's a strand of RNA or double-stranded RNA or DNA. How could it, how could it sense anything? How could there be? Yeah, I, I mean, think, now you've got even less to work with. You just got a strand of base pairs. How yeah, I think it's yeah, that's a good question. I think it's because it seems to work best, in my opinion, that if the virus is integrated into the chromosome and the, into the genetic material of a host cell. So there's a way that the host cell decorates its genome, and as it, to recognize it even as self instead of non-self. There's lots of ways for that to happen. So if this is occurring, and imagine stress is kicking in or aging is kicking in, and that starts to break down, then literally across the genome, there's going to be less of this marking it up and decorating it this way. That alone might be a good enough sensing cue for a genetic element within that genome to exit, to either you know, uh, pop out if it's a transposon or something very small, or if it's a, a prophage, something that's nested within the genome, it might be enough for that to be sensed as, oh, something's not right about this cell. Let me just go ahead and kick in the only other option that I have, and that is lysis. So it could be you know, through natural selection over time in that virus system that the reward goes to viruses that have any ability at all 
to take a stress signal in the cell and to have that upregulate the lysis process, well, necessarily those are the viruses that are going to successfully make it to another cell to replicate. And that trait will be reinforced through natural selection and it will evolve. Well, essentially that a virus is maintaining its agency. If it can go latent for days, months, weeks, years, and then depending on host conditions, turn lytic, I mean, it's essentially it's, it's acting uh, contrary to the, to the cell. So the, the homeostatic yeah. drive of the cell, so it retains its agency. So this, right. this makes me wonder, like within a cell, is it itself like a holobiont? Is the mRNA <laughs> and RNA and all the other stuff floating around in your cell, do, does any of that have its own agency? Therefore the cell is like this, it's just like us, but just a smaller version. Yeah, I've long been a fan or at least enamored of different biological levels exist and natural selection could occur in all of them. I think a lot of people, I don't know, a lot of people lay public, but maybe scientists appreciate it a bit more that, uh, you know, genetic elements or other things that parasitize genomes, they have their own autonomy, if you will, or at least they have their own agency as you stated it. So why would we think that the selection acting on a transposon, a prophage, a, a virus is the same as what's happening on the host? There's a different, um, I should say, there's, there's like a, uh, a different, uh, I don't want to use goal, that's too goal-oriented. There's a different outcome for selection depending on the strategy that you have to work with as a biological entity. So if you, if you sense, if you can see selection happening at the cellular level, there could be a different kind of a selection happening at the subcellular level. That's my point. And sometimes this could be coordinated going in the right direction if both of them are working together and there's a net benefit or a synergy to whatever they're doing in their environment. But if suddenly they're in another environment where that synergy breaks, then they could have different um, uh, different selection acting on them differently, and this agency starts to take over. Do you think there's a role of epigenetics for viruses? You know, it's, it's an RNA or DNA virus. Um, once it's inside a cell, I mean, do you think it could it, it could be methylated and it could achieve epigenetic marks? And do you think this could lead to the you know viral progeny looking different from one another, like quasi species? Yes, um, a guided creation of progeny that would, would better adapt to the host for further infection? Yes, I think we are likely to see more evidence of epigenetics interfacing with virus replication as we get to understand epigenetics better, as we study it better. So one... And I don't mean the epigenetics of our cells. I mean that and epigenetics of the viral genetic sequence too, like the virus itself acquiring marks. Yeah, it, it, it could be. I mean, it, that would not surprise me. I don't have great examples or evidence from that in my own research. But one maybe related thing is if you have, this is what's, there's, I'm going to describe something that's not um, completely unknown in viruses. In other words, we have some evidence for it. So if you have a virus that's replicating in cell type A, and you get the same virus and it's replicating in cell type B, as those virus particles exit, they could present the exact same genotype if you sequence them, but they could have a very different ability to infect other cell type A or B or cell type C. In other words, there can be this sort of 
maternal effect, if you will, from replicating in one cell type that does not alter the genetic material, but sometimes alters the, but somehow alters the phenotype or the performance or the ability to infect another cell and successfully undergo replication. So what is that? Is it stuff that's attached to the virus genetic material in some epigenetic way? Is it the proteins or lipids or whatever that's on the exterior of the virus particle that it, that it obtained from being in cell A versus B and then affecting how it replicates in some similar or different cell type? I mean, this stuff is observed, but I don't think we have a great answer for why. And it's profoundly important because it's at the, I would say it's the root of what you'd call emergence or host shifts. You know, how is it that you have viruses exiting one host type and successfully or not replicating in another host type? So we need to figure out those rules because the observations don't always give us insight into what the mechanisms are. Well, I guess you could say there's perhaps three ways. You know, there's the random mutation part. Who knows how much of a role it plays, if any, in successful replication of, of progeny. Um, maybe epigenetic markings. Um, and then um, maybe there's also some form of um, viral engineering that goes on. Once it's inside a cell, it, it may be able to rearrange its genetic material mm-hmm. to achieve a different function. So maybe all three things are going on. It could be lots of these intricacies are happening. I love what you said about rearrangement. We, uh, there's a lot of uh, expectation. Well, let me say it this way. So there's a lot of modularity in viruses. So if you look at viruses of a particular family, you can recognize them as being related because they'll have very homologous genes in the same order along the virus genome. And you just simply line them up and it makes sense. There's not as many examples of uh, the, the equivalent would be if you have close relatives of viruses in the same family, but they have radically altered, you know, the, you know, which gene follows which along the chromosome. You don't see so much of that. Now, you do see sometimes entire cassettes of the chromosome look like viruses in other families, and that's like a mosaicism effect where an entire cassette came in, recombined, and maybe it led to another successful, completely new virus lineage. But my point is whether there's some rule in virology that says to replicate successfully as a virus in some particular family, there's a early, middle, late gene expression and replication steps in the cell. And it sort of goes to, you know, a good strategy and it's hard for viruses within that family to mess around with that strategy. They become a bit locked in. And the way viruses, um, seem to change is, is somewhat modular. It seems like, you know, there's like a shelf of, of genes and they, they'll take some off the shelf and they'll be incorporated into themselves and they'll, they'll swap, you know, chunks of, of DNA or genes. It seems modular. Yeah. At least in some of the sequences I've looked at. Yeah. We definitely see the hallmarks and the sequences of this happening. What's been tricky is in, in, in any one experiment or as we just sample particles and viruses from the natural world, it's hard to sort of see this in action. So I would love to do more experiments in my lab, and I'm sure others aspire to do this as well. Can you get some of these, you know, uh, big transitions due to recombination or reshuffling of material or cassettes moving in and out happening within your experiment so you can sort of see it in real time and examine it? A lot of 
purposeful engineering to create different variants or to, to make these recombinants and then see how they evolve in the lab, there's plenty of that done. But to see it naturally occur in the context of our experiments, I guess it could be just the rarity of the event um, or we may be culturing viruses in a way in the laboratory that is unknown to us, but it may not be the easiest way for the viruses to grow and to achieve this kind of reshuffling. And I guess just like we can't make certain bacteria uh, grow in a lab setting, I'm sure there's plenty of viruses that we can't somehow uh, make an isolate of in a lab setting too. Yeah, the culture conditions for bacteria being possible versus not to observe them in the lab is well known. And I think we don't appreciate enough of how this happens in viruses and why we can and cannot culture them based on the lab conditions. So I was thinking about um, a bee colony. You know, you have the worker bees, the drones, the queen, et cetera. So they're all different phenotype, but they're all what you'd call bee. Mm -hmm. And they all act together to make this, I don't know, this multi-element organism. You know, if I get infected by a virus, am I getting infected by one virus with one exact sequence of RNA or DNA, or am I getting infected with a swarm of all these quasi-species? And, and if so, do you think that's necessary to make the infection more successful? Like there's different roles for these quasi-species, if so, just like bees in a bee colony. Yeah, that's, that's a cool thing to ponder because let's take the current pandemic or any other virus of humans that we worry about. It's a little, well, more than a little unclear. What is the inoculum effect? You know, how many particles do you have to see to become sick? And I think what we are seeing in this current pandemic is it may depend on your age, your physiological state. Now, that's not that surprising. We've seen some of that before, but the, the huge variation in that is pretty evident for COVID-19. The Getting a little more to your question, the quasi-species is observable in many RNA viruses when people actually measure it. You know, we do some sequencing of virus populations in our lab, and if they have RNA genomes, yeah, you can pick this up through deep sequencing, where there's very prevalent one or a handful of genotypes, and then this huge swarm of mutants that are one or a few mutational steps away. See, this is observing the quasi-species. So it would be great to do more experiments to examine what's the extent of the quasi-species that's necessary to affect overall traits of the virus or effect on the host cells as they're being infected. That's, to me, that's kind of the root of what you're saying. And um, the trick is, can you just do that through controlling population size? So as you let the virus grow to a larger size, it's going to accumulate more mutants. But then you have this issue of, well, I've got a large size now versus a small size virus population that has fewer mutants, but it has fewer individuals. So there's a way of kind of doing that a bit more elegantly than I just described briefly, where you control these systems and you use them in experiments. And I think we get at your question, are there some subset of viruses in that quasi-species or variable population that play a key role in the infection process and it helps the entirety? And then it starts to be more of a, oh, this is, a, this is kind of a collective action of different variants and a, a bit more of what we talked about earlier in our discussion, whether you can have a division of labor. So I think that's highly cool, um, needs more research. The closest thing I 
guess that we've done in that realm is we've looked a lot at the effects of co-infection. So if you have viruses entering cells together, then they can interact and the replication within the cell is one important thing that they're selected to do better and better. But another thing is to interact with one another and the selection to maybe take advantage of other genotypes being in there that make proteins and bits and pieces of viruses and you're going to steal them as a virus. So that's more of a cheater virus strategy. And we see this in the laboratory. I think it was first shown in poliovirus experiments in the lab a long time ago, but we've had a lot of fun examining what is the role of different genotypes inside of cells where they have different strategies for utilizing the resources in the cell and the evidence that some of them essentially steal stuff from other viruses. And I guess the last thing I'll say about that is even in clinical isolates of important virus pathogens, you see evidence for this. So in dengue virus, especially in some clinical isolates in Asia, you find that the variant that is infecting people is some short form of the virus that can't even replicate on its own. So therefore it must be co-infecting cells within a human host with longer form ordinary variants of the virus, and somehow the one that wins this competition and becomes clinically important is this cheater virus that can't replicate on its own and has to rely on a full-length virus. I think we've underestimated the strategies of sub-full-length viruses out in nature and just how successful they can be. And they've got very different replication strategies because they cannot do it on their own. They have to replicate in the cell with a virus that's giving them something else. That's amazing. If I get infected by a virus and then I pass, and if I label myself number one, and then I hang out with you and I give it to you and you're number two and you hang out with someone else, they get it, they're three. By the time it passages to like person number 100, what do you think will have changed about the virus and its ability to infect and you know all that stuff? What do you think person 100 will experience yeah. versus one? Yeah, so this is where it gets really tricky. So the... Let's, let's just consider viruses that have a pretty high mutation rate. So what one would expect is there this chain of transmission from person one to 100 is uh, maybe my naive expectation is that that virus lineage is going to get better and better at infecting that host. And it will change over time such that the 100th person and its virus population is going to look substantially different from patient number one because the virus has evolved to be better at whatever it needs to be better at within that host. Okay, but if you consider a virus system that has a pretty high mutation rate, there might be a particular variant of that virus that is good for the actual transmission step. And within the host, a lot of growth occurs, the viral load expands and all this mutations that maybe even let it interact with your cells better, it still may rely most on that key variant, that key genotype at the transmission event, and it kind of resets itself. And it's able to do this because the mutation space is accessible. It has a high mutation rate. And even if that mutant that is great for transmission is not very prevalent during the peak of the infection within the person, it can kind of reset back to that variant. As far as I know, that seems to be true in HIV is that you get a lot of variation in HIV within a human, but the tendency for some key genotype or genotypes to be the best ones 
at the initial transmission and infection of a new host stays pretty constant through time. So I think that, that yeah, that kind of demonstrates that there's this fluidity in viruses is that they become very mutationally diverse, but they can also use it. And most people just think of that, oh, well, they're changing all the time, they're changing all the time, changing all the time. Well, yeah, but it also means that they can go back to the starting point a little easier or a lot easier than mutational systems that we think of that are DNA-based. They have access to that old variant in a way because they just mutate back to it. And you can kind of get this toggling back and forth so that there's a constancy, if you will, over time. But the different variants are important as that virus is transmitting from person one to 100. And maybe you're not going to see as much variability as you would expect. Well, so if the end game of all viruses supposedly is just replication endlessly, um, do viruses tend towards being more commensal? They don't seem to tend towards becoming, you know, more pathogenic. Mm. I don't know if they tend towards endogenization or, you know, if that's yeah. not their ability, then probably never. But do they, do they all tend to go towards being, you know, commensal with their hosts and trying to live with them forever? Yeah, I think, in my opinion, there are several routes to success in the virus world. And the, let, let me start first with the uh, endogenization or becoming locked in to the host genome. I think I'm safe in asserting that historically, most of the thought in that area has been, oh, that's an unfortunate accident for that virus. Something caused it to be locked in. And I'm not so sure. I think it could be just a path that selection can push a virus down this path, that it gives up autonomy in order to kind of evolve a more consistent environment for replication to occur, even though it's less autonomous. It sort of puts all of its chips in with the host and goes that route. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that's a path for selection, just like a different path for selection would be, okay, this lineage of virus is going to be highly infectious, makes a ton of particles in the host, and then exits as quickly as possible. And it's more of what you call an acute infection. So to me, those are potentially equally possible and valid routes for evolution of viruses, and uh, they can take path A, B, or other. And this is why we see the great variety in the virus world about transmission. So I think this relates, I believe I can make this bridge, to one of the more impressive examples of viruses that are out there are these uh, polyDNA, or I've heard it pronounced polydna, viruses that exist within parasitic wasps. So parasitic wasps are incredibly successful as a group, and they are very reliant on the female wasp interacts with a larval insect host, such as a caterpillar, and they're very specific in terms of which of these host species they interact with, and they'll oviposit or she'll place her eggs within the host larvae body, and you know, it's pretty gross, but often those eggs um, they'll emerge as baby wasps and they'll use that caterpillar as it's living, as a living resource. They just sort of eventually exit. So how are they capable of doing this? Because caterpillars and other insects have good defense systems, especially if a wasp is wandering along and trying to lay an egg in them. So what they'll do, these wasps have an interaction with polydnoviruses and they deliver these virus particles when they deliver their eggs. And 
as a result, those viruses are not even carrying virus genes anymore. They've become part of their host wasp genome, and they deliver wasp genes. And those wasp genes downregulate the immune response in the insect larvae. So you've got this very tight mutualism between viruses and this very successful group of parasitic wasps. And it seems to be an ancient relationship where it's one type of polydenovirus and one type of wasp. And yet these wasps are incredibly speciose. So what does this mean? Are those viruses suckers that they long ago got co-opted by wasps to do this delivery of wasp genes? Or could this be seen as a kind of a success in the virus world that we underappreciate? They're still, they still look like viruses, but they're locked in to an interaction with these wasps. And, you know, who are we to say what success is or is not for a virus as it evolves on the planet? So if I get sick, if, if, you know, someone's like on death's door, the virus almost killed them, they're in horrible shape, and I get sick from them versus me getting sick from someone that seems totally fine, they're like asymptomatic. Do you think that means, I mean, will I get very sick if I get sick? Does that matter? I know I have my own genes and makeup and there's right. a lot of variation there, but any right. guesses? Yeah, I, I mean, I love that. And that's part of my research. That's called uh, uh, gene by environment interactions. So if you have a virus and it dictates the disease state, is it is it a property of the virus in its genome or is it a you know an interaction between that virus and host A and how sick host A is? And if the same virus enters you as host B, will it dictate whether you become very sick or not? So I think, well, I think I, I know that my uh, intuition and my experience in research is that I'm a, a bigger believer in the property of the virus to cause disease or not is a property of the virus. And it has more to do with the host physiology or how sick they'll be due to other things that are going on in that host. Um, I, I guess that's one way for me to answer your question. And that explanation, maybe rip it up and throw it out if there's actual genetic change happening in that virus in host A before it reaches you. Uh, and if there's a different kind of an evolution in host B before it reaches you, then, then I guess I'm back to my original assertion that, okay, now the virus has changed genetically and its interaction with the host physiology is a new set of rules that'll develop. Viruses are so variable and so adaptable. Do you think they could be used to explore you know, like, you know, how we're using AI to explore an information space to create new drugs that would target a certain molecule, you know, or a certain receptor. Mm -hmm. Do you think viruses could be used as like a biological AI Absolutely. to like really, really explore an information space and figure out what works? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's reminding me a bit of what we're, we're trying to do with phage therapy is, you know, if you've got a phage candidate that you want to use to target a bacterial pathogen, is it a problem that if you have that bacterial pathogen and he and she or they have that bacterial pathogen, is it the same genotype? And is my phage going to work the same in them as it works in you? So what we're trying to use are huge experiments that look at different phages and different genotypes of the target pathogen and create this big grid of infection success or not for that phage. And the way that you do this is you create a more, you can create a more variable phage population to examine just the possibilities 
and to sort through all the data, especially at the genomic level and make sense of it, you'd want to maybe take an AI approach and say, okay, let me train the system to understand the rules so that if I just handed you a novel phage genome or a novel target pathogen genotype, could your set of rules say, oh yeah, that's a good phage match for that bacterial genotype? Or, oh, that bacterial genotype, no, no, it's going to escape all the phages that we might throw at it because I know enough through my AI training that I understand the system. So in a way, I know you didn't ex exactly ask me that question, but harnessing phages or viruses as tools, as variability to look at outcomes, that's definitely happening in biotechnology and uh, people okay. are trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's not a crazy idea at all. In fact, I, I think it's a, it's a great idea. And it's, it's kind of more in the realm of what people call phage display and other things like this, where they've harnessed phages for some period of time to create just variable proteins and, and other things that could be tested through high-throughput experiments to see what binds to what and kind of uh, understand biology with some depth through using a system that is itself variable or could be made highly variable to test different possibilities. Yeah, and last question. Do you know of anyone that's dissected a giant virus or any virus at all? I mean, I know it's really tiny. Is there a way even to dissect a virion? And, you know, has anyone even tried this? Ooh, so bit by bit and take the pieces apart? Yes. Ooh, I guess the closest I've seen is if you let a virus, let's say a phage, interact with a cell or a set of cells and you sort of stop the replication process at different points, Within the cytoplasm, you'll get these different bits and pieces, and people can look at, uh, you know, like what 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 is the amount of this bit and piece of a virus that's made in time step A versus B versus C as the replication proceeds. So in a way, that's not dissection of a single particle. I know what you're asking me. That's more about inferring, uh, you know, and studying what these bits and pieces are in a, in a sort of a larger way through the population of viruses that are replicating inside of a cell. Boy, it would be hard to use optical tweezers or something small enough to pull a virus apart bit by bit. We should be able to do that. I don't know if anybody was doing it. We should be able to do that with some giant viruses because they are larger than the smallest known cells. So I, I could imagine that could work. What is... Uh, you know, sort of going back and forth on this, I suppose what would make it difficult is you need an efficient way to create these viruses that are tweezed apart. And, you know, you want them to be reliably consistent so that as you dissect different virus particles, you'll kind of get that information from more than one virus, you know, more than one experiment, more than one virion. You'll see it in lots of them and it can kind of make sense of it in a holistic way. So that's pretty cool technological challenge and uh there's got to be somebody out there trying to do it yeah. well paul you've been very gracious thank you so much for answering all the questions and going in this wild speculative ride i appreciate it and, uh, what, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and maybe to become one of your grad students or something or at least to read sure. your papers and see what you're doing sure i i think a, uh, a good way is to just first thing is search on Paul Turner at Yale. I'm currently the only Paul Turner here, and they can find out a lot by looking at my website, which is turnerlab.yale.edu. Um, 
There's uh, opportunity to follow us on Twitter. I mean, we, we try and get our information out there. I give a lot of outreach talks. As we said at the beginning of the interview, I have a lot of taped um, lectures that I've given for free, videos on YouTube. And I just like putting that stuff out there. And if people are interested, they'll watch. And hopefully they'll learn a bit more about how virology works, how virus evolution works. And I don't think we need a reminder anymore that virus evolution is important. So, All right, well, Paul, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. All right, nice talking to you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.